welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. The city that we're in right now is obsessed with the public place. Social media uh, gives all of us an equal opportunity to be a part of this. Uh, whether you feel like you are constantly posting things on social media, uh, filling up the public place, uh, maybe that's not you. Um, odds are uh, you're a part of it in one way or another. Maybe there's, there's one or two virtuous people in the room that don't have anything to do with it at all. But uh, there is an obsession about the public place. Uh, it's evident, like you get a coffee, Let's, let's make sure people know that happened. You're dating someone, let's make sure somebody know that happened. If you got married, let's make sure everyone knows that happened for the next six months, you know? Like, we're kind of obsessed with the public place. Something good happens, public place. But oftentimes, like, something, something bad happens, I still need to, like, reach out, get my attention. We still have our, our way of being obsessed with the public place, even if we don't want to participate in it. We still need to go and try to observe what's happening with everybody else in the public place, yeah? And, he, and here we are, I'm having a look at Jesus this afternoon. And Jesus was obsessed with the secret place. So let's think about what this might mean for us, yeah? Everything going on in, in public, it, uh, it actually results in a lot of pressure. If, uh, if this is the public persona, if this is the me that people know, then I'm actually under a lot of pressure and stress to keep it up and to keep it going. Um, some sociologists are already saying, like, we are manufacturing identities right now in a way that hasn't happened at any other point in human history. We're just putting these images, we're putting these quotes, putting these sayings out there, and if someone were to know the real us, like, have a coffee with us or spend a day with us, they'd be like, man, that, the person I see there and the person I know here, there's a huge difference between the two. And that actually creates a lot of pressure, it creates a lot of stress, creates a lot of anxiety. And people all over this city, this is, this is how we go. This is like the way of the city that we're living in. Um, here specifically is how it goes in, in, three, in three simple words. You look around this town, a typical life in London, right? Um, start out with an ambition. I mean, that's why we're here. A few people in this room were actually born here. It was like ambition that brought a lot of people to, the, to, to London and to this room. We spend a life in ambition we have a drive, we're going for something, and we hit that moment where we just get exhausted, yeah? And this is a typical life in London in three short words plus a few arrows, you know? Like, this, this is how it goes. This is what we do. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow when you, you have a day to just to go around, the, the people all around you, they're, trying, they're recovering from this. Um, when you turn back up at work on Monday morning, uh, the, the, the first 10 people you greet, they were dealing with this, and the next 90 people after that, this is what we do. Um, no one really comes to a place like this to naturally thrive, you know? Like, why are you here? Oh, I have small, I have small to little no, or dreams and ambitions. I'm just literally here just to do as little as I can. No, like, it's dreams and ambitions and a bit of a big picture vision that, like, gets a lot of people here, but this is how it goes. Jesus 
had a countercultural rhythm to his life where he found a way not to fall into this trap. It looks like this in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came near to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I mean, think about that. In a world obsessed with the public place, right? I mean, if the disciples live today, no doubt they're bringing out the PR team. Like they're getting, they're getting like a hashtag trending on Twitter. Like it's everything we have. The crowds are coming. Here we go, Jesus. Let's get ready to go. And Jesus had a way that when the allure of the crowd even came to him, he wasn't trying to buy followers. He was seemingly trying to get away from followers. He didn't obsess with the public place in a way that we did. In fact, he actually sought out the secret place. Now, where we are, if you're new to the house today, here's what's been happening. Two weeks ago, we began a journey. We're considering there's two ways to live. There's two ways to live this life. The way of Jesus or the way of self. So two weeks ago, the way, to, the way of Jesus, and Teddy just prayed it wonderfully for us. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we started there. Then last week, we considered, well, if we want to grow, then we're going to have to be with Jesus. And we looked in John chapter 15, and we considered the only way to grow, the only way to have life is to be connected to this Jesus. And then it brings us into today and these next couple of weeks. We're focusing on these rhythms, these habits, these dynamics of Jesus's life. And if we, if we don't do this, then we will go somewhere with our exhaustion that is not the way of Jesus. So, so here's the typical response from the world then. This is how the world typically responds. How people typically respond. We take our exhaustion. We too escape but all over London all up and down the block, all throughout the tower, we respond with different forms of numbing. I'm not talking to you about something I don't understand. Like, I know what it is to get done with a day of pastoral ministry and want nothing more than a good 35-minute scroll. You know what I mean? Like, not reading the parchment. I'm talking about just scrolling. Mindlessly, just take it away. Take, take the thoughts away. Take the pain away. Take the frustration away. Take the worry away. Take the anxiety away. I understand this. That ain't the only way to numb. Oh, we numb through people. We numb through relationships. We numb through good habits. We can numb through bad habits. But we have different ways that we try to deal with the pain, with the exhaustion, with the frustration that we face. And someone says, like, you know, like, the noble in here, like we said, well, it's just for a season. I can't tell you how many times I've said it's just for a season, but you can lose things in a season. You can lose a relationship in a season. You can lose your integrity in a season. You can lose your standing in a season. So sometimes we don't have a season to give. And here's good news this afternoon. Jesus has a way out, okay? Like we all find ourselves, hopefully you can see yourself in this. It's like, okay, so that's me doing the numbing, like all across the room. Like maybe the best it is, is social media or texting somebody and then it goes all the way through substances, pornography, toxic relationships, and on and on and on. This is what we do. And Jesus has a way out. This is how Jesus responds. Dealt with those times of tiredness. He too sought to escape, but he sought to escape in order to nourish, to come back into the fight. So numbing or nourishing? 
the two ways we consider to live today. The Ortberg quote, it's been big in front of our eyes. Every time you see a life flourishing, it's because it's drawing on something from outside of itself in order to thrive. And last week we considered, so what is it? What are we drawing on to thrive? When the exhaustion hits and when the escape happens, and it's, I mean, this is, this is what, this is how you sustain a life here. Like you have to unplug some, you have to get away some. What do we plug into? What do we draw from? What do you draw from to thrive? This is what we're thinking about. And here's what Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8 says. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from the mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert and the salt land where no one lives. So the idea is that when the season of thinness comes, you have roots to you. They reach out. They're extending a little further to try to have something to attach to and lock on to. And if we're planted in the desert, then we're ultimately going to have to trust in ourselves again. Pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Tell ourselves we can do better. Tell ourselves, let's just be kind. Let's just be nice. Let's just try a little harder. And if you choose that way, this is what your soul will look like. I don't don't want to be harsh with you. I don't want to be harsh with me. I don't want to be harsh with us about this, but... That's too real for some of us. A thin shadow of a tree, no resource, no supply. I mean, it sounds great, but like this is what we carry around on our insides. And yet, there's good news for even this, because Jeremiah goes on to say in verses 5 through 6, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worry in a year of drought, for it never fails to bear fruit. And close to where Jeremiah was speaking was a place, of course, gonna, a good Southern American's going to bosh this name up. Um, Gan Hashlosha, somebody come back to me on this. It was fed by three streams beneath the surface and in the middle of a desert. This actually exists. In the middle of a desert, in the middle of a wasteland, this actually exists today. I mean, historians, theologians, they, they, they marvel over this place. I mean, an actual place in the desert supplied by three underground rivers, deep, deep wells that are able to give life to what's going on on the surface. Some people even wonder if this was actually the place where the Garden of Eden was. Very close to where Jeremiah gave us these words that we're considering this afternoon. Don't miss the good news. It is possible. It is possible, my friend. It is possible to live in a cultural wasteland and to have a spirituality that looks like this. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. And if your heart goes out to that and that feels too big, that just feels too great, then, then take heart, friends. As you lock roots, as we t- you choose to tie up our lives with one another, we have promises from God's word. He is indeed making his whole church into this. And the invitation to people is come get in on this. Come on. You don't have to hang on like that little bush just acting like you're alive. You can have this. This can be your soul. This can be your spirituality. This can be your life in London. If you're new to Redeemer, and it's been great seeing some people coming around over the last couple of weeks, um, 
a great way to introduce like who we are, what we're focused on, what we're trying to be about in this season. We want your soul to look like this. This is us. Come, be around. Plug in here. Put your roots down with us. We're after this. In the middle of a desert, in the middle of a wasteland, after roots that go way down, drawing from a very deep well, and having this and inviting people to come along and be a part of it. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning then, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place, and he prayed. And this was a rhythm of Jesus' life. He had a way of kind of slipping away from the world and plugging in to the stream, plugging into the source. Jesus would go on then, and it's what we see, and don't worry, I'm actually going to talk about Matthew 6, but not for that long. Um, Jesus would go on to say, what you need is the secret place. To do life in the public place, you need some strength that can only be yours in the secret place. Jesus would say to us this afternoon, everything you need for the public place can only be given to you in the secret place. And some of us were trying to sustain the public place from the public place. But we know how parched we feel. We know how empty this feels. We know how much of a limited supply it feels like we're we're running on. And, And maybe you're just trying to lean in as a Christian You look across the desk from somebody on Monday morning, and though it might not show up under all the makeup, it's there. It's the wasteland of a soul in desperate need of refreshing. It's the rhythm that Jesus had in his life. He constantly emphasized the importance of having a quiet, private time with God, away from the distractions of the world. While it was still dark, he got up, he left the house, he went to a place for prayer. Some of us are like, man, I could, do with, I could do with a stream. I could do with some green in my life right now. We go to the secret place. We allow, we allow him to refresh us and him to encourage us. A.W. Tozer said it like this, the secret place is the place where we learn to wait on God, to listen to his voice, and to be still before him. It's where we find the strength, the wisdom, and the guidance we need for our lives. The secret place is that way, place where we can get alone and we can be with God and we can talk to him, and we can listen to him, and we can allow him to say things to us that we desperately need to hear. The secret place is on offer. The question, will we continue our obsession with the public place or not? Will we give ourselves to the secret place? So here we go, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now when Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And what follows next in the Gospel of Luke is the very thing that we're studying now in Matthew. It's the Lord's Prayer. And you think about, what what does this mean? Well, this request to Jesus comes after a time when Jesus' followers have been observing Him pray. They're living amongst Him. They're watching His life. And they know He's kind of of up and away before everybody else gets up in the morning. But they're, they're also considering the profundity of His words. They're considering the power of His life. They're considering these miracles that just flowed from him effortlessly. And they're asking the question, can you teach us to pray? Some people want to go on and make a huge deal about this. Notice, they never asked him, will you teach us to preach? They never asked him, will you teach us to serve? They made the connection. There is something going on with this one. He is constantly slipping away from us. He is constantly depending on someone else. He is constantly finding water in another well Will you teach us to pray? That's the invitation we're into this afternoon. His life 
was characterized by a close relationship with God, a constant communication with God. He was constantly depending on the Father, drawing resource from the Father, taking needs to the Father, hearing from the Father, and able to move through the world. He had a power and authority that didn't only come from the fact that he was the Son of God, but came from the fact that he was in constant communion with his Father in heaven. He performed miracles to hear the sick. It was a power that flowed not only from him, but from the Father as well. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 14, the Lord's Prayer. He's asked, what should we do? And he begins in verses 5 to 8, basically saying, you're going to need to get away. You're going to need the secret place. In Luke chapter 11, this conversation got started because he was in the secret place and he came back and he was asked, what should we do? How can we have some of this? And then here in Matthew tells us in the same account, he goes on to say, listen, there's a public place and there's a secret place. And if you want energy for your life, if you want something that your soul is going to be able to run on, you're going to have to be in the secret place. So according to Jesus, there's public giving, but there's private giving. There's secret giving. There's public service, but there's private service. And according to Jesus, there's a public life, there's a public spirituality, and there's the way it really is when it's just you and him. And he invites us. He invites us into the secret place. And we're not only invited to the secret place, all we get in this sermon are things that we can have in the secret place. So according to God, there's, there's two places, the public place and the secret place. And we are invited into the secret place. And we too can become like that desert that's been turned into a beautiful stream. Your life can become shrubbery that has life and fruit to give and to share to other people only as we're in the secret place. So the, the public place and the secret place, it comes into the prayer. It's like when the prayer works and when the prayer doesn't work, as we talk about the Lord's Prayer this afternoon, consider here's why our prayers typically don't work. It's because they're focused on our own selves. This might help illustrate some, some of what this is. Whenever we come to prayer focused on the self, just figure out, just, just take a look at this. And if the, if the graphic's not great, I'll, I'll just read a bit to you. Sometimes we come to prayer with a focus on the self. We come to God, you get alone with God, you have 20 minutes tomorrow morning maybe, cup of tea before there's a lot of noise going on around you. But think about how to go to God focused on self versus going to God focused on God. Sometimes we show up with a focus on us. You say, make a name for myself, bless my plans, build my kingdom, relieve my struggles. We have worry over our present urgencies, quarrels and conflicts, or avoidance of, of it all. And if, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we just feel defeated by the challenges. Not just before we show up, but when we show up and we try to talk with God in prayer, and this is our experience. There's another way to go at it. It's the way that's on offer. It's what Jesus is asking us for. Not even approaching what happens next, focused on self, but focused on God. Sure, sure there's so much drawing us in to think about ourselves, but we show up here thinking, our Father in heaven. We're asking, increase, increase God, my capacity for you. We're thinking, holy is your name. So a reverence for God ought to be among us. It isn't about us getting a good name. It's about God banishing the idols from our lives. We show up thinking about God. We're rejoicing in God's reign. We're asking for opportunities to announce God's gospel. That's what we say when we say, your kingdom come. Over here, God's will becomes our will then. As we become consumed, we become a people passionate about mercy and justice. We say, your will be done. That's how you move to be a kind of person passionate about mercy and justice. 
give us our daily breads, when we're focused on contentment and simplicity, this is what actually leads to generosity, focusing on daily bread. So if we're focusing on our daily goods, not our daily greeds, like God, give me what I need today. Like, just get me through this next one. I know you're there. It's a relationship. I'm coming back tomorrow. Give me what I need today. Forgive us as we forgive. We release grudges. We release debts. And we say, lead us and deliver us. Guidance, power, spiritual advance. That's when it comes in. So maybe we can even keep that in mind as we comb through this, combing through it, looking for God, looking for more of God, looking for less of us. Consider verses, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-10. through 10. We're invited. Let's, let's have a life of adoration and worship. And right here, we are told to pray to our Father. God wants to be known as Father. He intends to be known as Father. Jesus leads us to say, our Father, who wants to provide for His precious children. Now, in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as Father 15 times. When you turn the page into the New Testament, you get to the Synoptic Gospels. That's what you call the first three that give you the strict biographical ordering of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He is referred to as Father by Jesus 64 times. And when you get to the Gospel of John, Jesus calls God Father more than 100 times. He intends to be known as Father. He wants to be thought of as Father. Jesus, when Jesus prayed, Jesus prayed, Father. And Jesus looks at people that are wondering, I could do with some power. I could do with some resource. What do I do next? And Jesus says, this is how you do it. You go to God and you say, our Father. That's the invitation. He intends to be known as fathers. He taught us to address Him as Father. You think about all the different ways He's referred to in the Bible. He's the all-powerful one. He is the almighty one. He's the all-knowing one. He's the ever-present one. He is the Lord of angel armies. He is the king who sits on the throne. He is the lawgiver. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the magnificent one. He is the consuming fire that never burns out. He is the one high and lifted up. He is the one whose glory fills the temple. He is the great I am. And Jesus says, when you go to him, you can say this to him. Abba. Daddy. Father. Father, Father. Jesus says we can go to God and we can say the word, Dad. Addressing God as Father, it's only possible because of what Jesus was going to go on and do in His life. He was headed to a cross. He was headed to death. He would resurrect on our behalf. We too can be adopted. We can be brought in. We can be brought into His family. We can be children along with Jesus under this Father. We can receive the generous family privileges that are on offer. We can have kingdom blessings that are ours. We can enjoy the closeness of Jesus as being our big brother. All because of what he does for us. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4-9, through 9, he says, This is the Spirit that's been given to you. You can call out to God, Abba. You can call Him Father. And that's where the prayer begins, talking about God as Father. We ask the Father to hallow His name, to make His name so big, so good in our lives that it renounce worship for Him. We think about this. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God wants us to desire these things. Jesus leads us to orient our lives around these things. And we go back to where we started. When we have the exhaustion, we make the escape. 
whatever we do next, this is what we are actually looking for. A massive anchor to hold our souls. Check out verse 11. We're told to ask for provision. Ask God to provide for our needs. Give us today our daily bread. It's a petition for God to provide for our basic needs, such as food and shelter. This came up in our community group on uh, Wednesday night. Um, I forget who exactly had the insight. They probably didn't want me to talk about them now. But uh, it was fascinating to us that God, that Jesus in this moment didn't teach individuals how to pray individual prayers. Jesus looks at a group of people and he teaches them to pray in the plural because it leads all of us, no matter what our position, whether we own the house that we came here from or where we walked here from an estate this afternoon, it teaches all of us to identify with one another. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Members, we're all one before this God. And we're all ultimately equal and even before him. Make this a little more practical and tangible, though. Prayer isn't only a spiritual business. It's about all your life. Whatever your needs are, whatever you're facing, you can take it to your Father in heaven and you can go into his presence. You can say, Father, I need some stuff. And you can have him come into your life. You can have him provide daily bread for you. He can meet your daily goods. Not necessarily your daily daily greeds, but your daily goods. He will come through for you. Go to Him as Father. Ask Him to come through. See how He responds. Verse 12, we're led to confession and intercession. This is where we ask God for forgiveness and then we allow God's forgiveness to move us to forgive other people. Martin Luther said repentance isn't only the first step of the Christian faith, it's every day of the Christian faith. And Christian, if we're not regularly and routinely telling God we're sorry, if we're not regularly and routinely looking at our sins, consider the many ways that we've run around on Him, we've cheated on Him, we've slighted Him, we've held back, we've broken our word in all kinds of ways. We aren't perfect. No, Jesus says this is core. This is core. Come, ask for forgiveness. And as you ask for forgiveness, release the debts that you're holding as well. I know that's not easy to say. And I'm not saying that we ignore, diminish, or even excuse the sins that have been committed to us. But I am saying, according to Jesus here, there ought to be something to His people that when they experience His forgiveness and when they ask Him for forgiveness, the levity of spirit that washes into the heart, the peace that overtakes the soul, according to Jesus here, It means that we should be able to release the grudge, to release the offense, to release the sins that have been committed against us. This is where it might even be helpful for us to remember. Um, Forgiving someone is only one side of the relationship. A reconciliation involves both parties coming together to express forgiveness and ask for healing and help on both sides. But here we are just told by our King, so far as it depends on you, Live at peace with all people. Then in verse 13, we're told to ask for protection. May we not fall into temptation. Um, These two phrases, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us uh, from the evil one. Um, I hate saying things like this from time to time. I don't do it every week as a pastor. There's some stuff going on in the Greek that makes it tough to bring across into the English. So if you're looking at this and you're wondering and you're thinking about that one verse from James that kind of connects to testing, is this, is this that? I don't know, maybe. And we're just kind of sitting in this together. A, f- a few things to make this clear. Satan is real. 
Demons are real. Sinners are real. And sin is real. This world is filled with temptation and evil. And while we can and should pray to our Father for forgiveness, we also need to pray to Him to ask that He would help us to advance through this world that's so filled with sin. So it's about us learning to go to our Father, receive the forgiveness that He always has, new new mercies every morning, just ready for you again. Can't tire Him out. He's not like an earthly dad. He's so much better. He's going to keep coming through for you. And then we, we learn to pray. Don't, don't bring us to the test. Knowing that there's going to be times when we all have to go through the test because James is right. He's going to take us through some things. He's going to test us not to wound us, not to discipline us, but to refine our faith. But man, daily we're praying, look, don't, don't bring me to the test. So then when you're brought to the test, you know it's time for the test. You know, If you're daily praying this up, though, when the, when the, when that, when the adversity comes, you know it's time to move through it. He ends in verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they've sinned against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive the sins of others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. We kind of sit with this one and we're a little puzzled. We wonder, what does this have to do with the sovereignty of God? Is this a work? If I forgive somebody, is that a work? Do I get qualified up to this in some way? No, no, no. We think like this prayer is about shaping us into the kind of people that God wants to use in the world the kind of people that are looking for God's name to be great and not their own names, the kind of people giving out God's name and not constantly promoting their own name, the kind of people that are feeding other people and making sure other needs are met around them and not their own. So it would make a ton of sense then we get down to the end. We're the kind of people that are forgiving. We're the kind of people that are releasing debts and we're releasing grudges whenever they come to us. And if mentally you could kind of scroll back and think, this is how you get, this is how you get the garden in a desert. And according to Jesus, he's like, yes, this is where it's to be found. You steal away with the father. He's in the secret place. He sees what happens in secret. He's waiting on you in secret. You steal away with him and you pray this through. And this is how you get planted. This is how you draw life from God only in the secret place. And Jesus would know because Jesus is God. But if you're also thinking about it, just one more quick theological quandary and maybe we get into the rest of this. You think like Jesus is God. Why did he pray? I mean, if he's God, like surely he didn't need to pray. Surely he's just teaching us what to do. But no, he's fully God. He's fully divine. He possessed all the attributes of God, including omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, all-power, and omnipresence. He's he's able to be present everywhere, all times, and everything. He possessed this, yet he's fully human. He's fully human in his incarnation. Philippians 2 tells us there's the glory that he laid aside so you'd look at him and you wouldn't guess it's necessarily him. And he came in his full humanity to demonstrate for us the importance and the power of prayer. So Jesus showed up praying at all times, praying all the time. You notice he didn't just teach on prayer. There was something about his life that necessitated teaching on prayer. He was constantly stealing away. He was constantly in the secret place. He was constantly talking to the Father. And then when asked, he explains what's going on and how to do it. So we think about Jesus. Jesus then demonstrated humility and dependence on God for us. In an act of praying, he's showing that he's God. Prayers not only for our benefit, it's a demonstration of humility. It's a demonstration of dependence in his humanity on his Father. So we're considering the two ways to live. There it is. Jesus is the model we should follow. He's a model to follow. 
still needing to commune with the Father, wondering what it looks like, wondering how to do it, look no further than Jesus. He's the perfect human. Look at Him. Imitate His life. So then we're left thinking, like, what would this look like very practically for us? We would, we would develop the secret place in our own lives. Early in the morning for you? Late at night for you? On your lunch break? What does it look like for us to be a people constantly stealing away just for 15 minutes with the Father? I just, I just need to sink my roots down because this life is hard. And when the pressure hits and the exhaustion comes on, I'm going to be tempted to escape. What do we sink our roots down into? We sink our roots a little deeper into self? Or do we take some time just to steal away and be quiet? It doesn't have to be flashly. You don't even have to tweet about this. Like, hey, you're not going to hear me for 30 minutes. I'm going to be in the secret place. All right, I'm out. And you just scurry away the secret place. No, you just, you just go to the secret place. We don't have to know. Just get away, be with Him, and then come back. You might find you're not only being nourished, but you're starting to nourish the people around you. And it's no secret. This is what we're pressing into as the Redeemer community. This is what we're asking God for more of right now in this, in this season. Um, if you're wondering, we're a church. Yes, we care about things like size of groups and size of numbers and attendance and events and gatherings. Like, all oh, that's really, really important. But it's of secondary importance to be in people who genuinely know God, genuinely enjoy God, and know how to help other people come to know God and connect with God. So what we're thinking about is a staff team. You wonder, like, what do they do on Monday? I'll, I'll tell you everything we do, but we sit around and we pray. We try to get ourselves happy in the Lord, and we focus on knowing Him before we focus on doing anything else. This is where we're going. Charles Finney once said, I've, I've, I've never known a person sweat blood. I've never known a person sweat blood, but I haven't known a person pray till blood started to run from his nose. And I've known persons pray till they were all wet with perspiration in the coldest weather in winter. I've known persons pray for hours till their strength was exhausted with the agony of their minds. Charles Finney was a revivalist preacher, traveled around North New York State uh, preaching sermons. He had this incredible itinerant uh, ministry that was propped up and held up by a man named Daniel Nash. God put it in the heart of Daniel Nash to pray for this traveling, evangelistic, itinerant preacher. And how things went between Finney and Nash uh, Nash would run away uh, to the town that Finney was supposed to preach in. He would like b get a room and like the places this guy stayed would blow your mind. Like I know we got some some like damp in London and things like this guy was staying in like cold, dark, damp rooms for two weeks at a time, sometimes fasting for two weeks on end, preparing the way for the gospel to come forward. Then Charles Finney would show up. He preached for two to three weeks, but shortly after Finney and the preaching got off the ground, Nash would run, run ahead to the next time, to the next town. It's like a musician with a tour schedule, like to the next spot. He would hold up in some dark, damp room and he would start praying again there. And it was this powerful, powerful ministry the two of them had together. It's Tombstone right here in uh, upstate New York, Daniel Nash, pastor. 1816 to 1822, laborer with Finney, mighty in prayer, November 27, 1775 to December 20th, 1831. 
They said the prayer covering was so heavy on Finney's life and on Finney's ministry. When Nash passed, it lacked so much power that he just had to go to New York City and just pastor a church because he didn't have the hand of God on his ministry like he did when, Finney, when, when Nash was going into towns and blazing the trail for him. Something powerful about prayer. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's saying, you want life? You want power? You want strength? Come get alone with the Father. And when you get alone with the Father, this is what you pray. You can go and you can read the pages of history. Hit page after page after page. Incredible movements of God. Incredible works of God. And what does it all trace down to at the end of the day? Oh, that one guy like really studied well. It's traced down to an intercessor who is hiding in a cold, dark, damp room for two weeks at a time. Laboring, praying, begging God so much that when he passed, the ministry just had to shut down with him. It wasn't the preacher. It was the prayer that was holding the work up. So Samuel Chadwick says this, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless study, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. Prayer brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. And there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. And we're pressing into this as a faith family. If I could just be so real with you, I wasn't planning to talk with you about some of this stuff today, but we'll get there at some point in some more depth and detail. I know what it's like to sit there and to hear somebody like me say these things. It just sounds like, gosh, there's like so much better things we can do with our time. Somebody's thinking, I, I've thought it while you're sitting there. I'm just assuming we're somewhat alike. You, you hear this and you think, there's, so, there's, there's like so many things we could do. We could actually find a better use of time better use of resource. We're going to get everybody together. We're going to sit in a room and we're going to talk to God. That's what we're going to do. Yes. And if I could just tell you, it was, it was those times and those seasons of my life. Yet some, some as a teenager, but being a Christian and following Jesus right after university, off to seminary, some of the darkest times of my life, being someone claiming to know God, but not actually visiting with God in prayer, knowing about Him, able to project a lot of details about Him, but no actual heart for Him or affection. And we hear something like this. And we hear like, here we go, we're pressing in. We're going to ask God for more. We're going to do some things differently. We're going to ask God to show up among us in a powerful way. The apathy that might arise in our spirit, it ultimately comes from those roots that are still drawing on self and we're depending on self. We're not depending on God. It's coming from that time where we're not in the secret place, but we get up in the morning. We get up early not to go meet with God, but we get up early to work on the books again and to lay out the calendar and to plan out the next day, but not to be with God. It's sourced back to our roots. I know what that root feels like in me. And if you feel that root in you, you know you're not alone. God intends to break up that unplowed ground of your heart. He intends to do a new work. So look, I do want to invite you one more time. And no, we're not going to stop talking about it until it's done. I want to invite you to break the soil. It's going on on Friday to Saturday, coming up this next week, from noonday on Friday to noonday on Saturday. 24 hours of prayer. It's going to be in the Redeemer office right over there in NW10. You sign up, you'll get all the information. We're going to have some things that you can pray for just written on paper. 
and you show up, you feel cold to God, you don't even want to pray, you don't even want to be in the room, but you want something that you've heard about this afternoon, you show up and you allow the fire that's in somebody else to warm your cold soul and you see if something doesn't jump off in you and spark something in you and you start caring a whole lot more and wanting to spend time with God as well. He will do it. He will do it. He will do it. And He will do it because He is a Father. He is a Father. This is where we land. He is a Father. He is a Father who loves His children. And I know something of what what it is to be a dad. I know something of what it is to be a dad to children of different temperaments and different affection levels. And you can know this, when it comes to your Father in Heaven, He loves you. And He wants time with you. He intends for you to know Him as Father and He intends for you to experience Him as a precious child. That's why prayer is talked about. I'm going to provide for my kids when we get out of here, right? Like a whole constellation of factors are going to work together, but like my kids will be provided for. There'll be a roof over their head. They'll be, by the time they sleep, there'll be food in their bellies. Some sort of experience or entertainment will have happened. I will provide for my kids. And I will provide for my kids whether my kids come to me and beg of me and ask me or whether they act like I don't exist because it's part of what it means to be a father. You know where the relationship between a father and a child is transformed? When, when it starts to become a big dialogue, when there's lots of discussion that gets kicked off. Hey, like, I know we're going to eat, but like, what, what do you want to eat? Where do you want to eat? Dad, where are we going to eat? Like, it changes things. When we think about like, what, what are we going to see? What are we going to do? You just think, oh, there's life in the relationship. And something that felt old and cold and dead can be reinvigorated, my friends. And God wants to reinvigorate it for you. Martin Luther, he would preach about this word, Abba. He said it surpasses all eloquence. It combats the cruel teaching that we should be uncertain about where we stand with God. He says this one word, Abba, it wraps up the whole story of Scripture. God is merciful. God is loving. God is patient. He is faithful. He is true. He keeps His promises. And He is Father. He intends for the people who call Him Father to experience His provision and to know they are a precious child who indeed belongs to Him. Most parents, they might get discouraged when they don't know what to do and how to provide for their kids. God has never had that thought with you once. 1 Timothy 5.17 says He is the only wise God. There is no limit to His wisdom. There is no limit to his power. He is not a distant authority figure. He is a very near help. Psalms 139.13 says he has plans for your future and he wants to talk with you about them if you will only come to him and pray. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says he has comfort for every pain you're carrying this afternoon. If you only go to him and allow him to comfort you. We're not only his children, but we are his apprentices. When Jesus was in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. His parents said, where were you? He says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? means as members of God's family, that's going to become us as well. We're going to become preoccupied with the same focus. We're going to be about the father's business throughout the course of our lives. And calling him father doesn't make us into some posh, spoilt kids with no idea how to navigate the ways of this world. Calling him father eventually makes us into tender children that look up to our older brother Jesus and think as they look at him, what does it mean to be a part of this family? And he wants to provide. 
Romans 8.15, He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with the Son graciously give us all things? Let's wait on Him and ask Him to. Father in Heaven, here we are, needy people. As much as we depend on ourselves and in ourselves, we have many needs this afternoon. Father, what we really need on the spot is we need You to awaken hunger in us for all the different things we're hungry for, for all the different things we thirst for. Please, awaken hunger in us for You. Awaken a deep thirst in us for You, God. Help us to see, like in Jeremiah's day, those broken wells and those broken cisterns we keep going to, they don't hold water like we thought they would. We pray that You would call us out from the desert into the sweet oasis of Your presence. We can be with You. We can wait on You. We can be waited on by You. So Father, for just a few minutes here, as we have some time to sing and to pray, we pray we would experience You as our Father. Refresh us and help us. Because the places that You've adopted us from, God, have not been pleasant. We come from a whole brokenness of relationships. We come from places where we've been abused and mistreated. For some of us in here, calling you Father causes a cringe because we know the lame person that we once called Dad. So God, we pray, would you pour your liquid love into our hearts? God, would you satisfy those parts of us that are hurting and longing? God, those parts of us that have a bored spirit when we come to You, we pray that You would break them up. Like a father that knows what's best for his children, God, we pray that You would break up a tired and bored and apathetic spirit that tempts us and is even present in some of us. We pray that You'd break it up, God. For hearts that struggle to get excited when we hear about the invitation to pray, God, forgive us. Forgive us. God, give us a vision of You that's exciting and delightful. Help us because our hearts desperately need it in a million different ways. So Father, we pray that You would receive us as we move to our feet and we open our mouths. We pray that we'd be able to sing to You and think things about You. We pray we'd experience Your help and Your love, even Your healing on the spot this afternoon. So here we are. Meet with us, God. We invite you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.